and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, put your arms around me. We need to forget the violence. Uh, well, I'm, I'm here to talk about violence, Cam, unfortunately. <laughs> but I'll hold you we if you'd like. We need to forget the violence. <laughs> We're all about gratuitous sex and violence here uh, on Spy Hards, as Never Never Again once taught us. And uh, we're stepping into a bit of some uncharted territory this week, which uh, we'll queue up in a minute. Uh, so to help us set sail into this strange multiverse here, we have a man who's very good at connections, especially cult ones. It is Mr... Ian Graham of the Cult Connections podcast. Hello, sir. How are you doing? I am very well, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, and and we are indeed we are we are delving into places uh, uh, that might not be as well known for people, which is uh, right up my my street, definitely. Parts unknown. <laughs> uh, but before we queue up the film, we're tackling this week. Let's just get to know you a wee bit. We've been on your show before to talk about a film I'm not going to say the name of, but uh, you can. <laughs> <laughs> it's our Voldemort. <laughs> it is. It is our Voldemort. That, that's a new thing. I like that. But, you know, yourself, Ian, we'll get to Cult Connections in a second, but, you know, you, we've been engaging online for like the better part of three years now talking about spy movies. You clearly have a passion for that, but sort of what got you into films in the first place and, and, and sort of enjoying them and talking about them too? It's a, that's a fascinating one. I mean, we all love, you know, cinema. We all have our, you know, memories of, you know, first films watched or or, or big films, and they imprint in your um, their brain, though, don't they? But uh, mm -hmm. I think for me, and um, films and and the te television as well, and uh, those odd odd sort of links or obscure versions of their things or or actors who who they turn up in uh, you know places that you don't think that they will and uh, uh, from a very young age that's always uh, that's always kind of you know tickled me I've always I've always really liked that so uh, it's just spotting those things it's like watching watching a film and uh, you know, seeing something and thinking, oh, oh I know this their story, or, or or I've seen this uh, actor there before, and I've always loved that, and it's just it's always been part of my uh, their brain, as it were. So yeah, that's making those connections, connecting those dots. It's like seeing Pat Roach in all three of the Indiana Jones films as different people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I love that sort that's, of stuff. It's so weird. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely spot on. Yeah. I was actually going to say, because we grew up similar eras, and you would have had a lot of movies made at Pinewood where you had that, that was cast like Pat Roach, like crossing into all these various movies. And so it's like your big blockbusters of the time, and you could suddenly go, wait a second, why is Julian Glover in Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Bond, like all so many of those character actors? That's it, spot on. It is. And, and as well, I think it's like, um, uh, you know, crossover with. Like they sort of TV, and it's maybe like a big, you know, soap opera actor who who gets a, you know, there there are a couple of lines in in a big, dead Hollywood film or something like that, and you're just like, mm. oh wow, that's 
that's you know so and so that's absolutely brilliant and uh, I mean so uh, you know you mentioned Pat and uh, their Roach and like he was in the huge um, their TV series over here um, during the uh, 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 their sort of eighties so so for many people Pat Roach is actually more seen as a a, a sort of TV actor or or if you're even older he was a um, their wrestler as well so you saw mm-hmm. him, you know wrestling you know. You know, back in the day, so it's uh, yeah, things like that. I just, I just love all that stuff. Speaking of like cult connections, there, the show you're referring to is Alfie the Saint Pet, and we had the writers of that show, Dick Clement, Ian Lefrenay, on when they made Never Say Never Again. It's all <laughs> exactly, connected, exactly. Yeah, exactly. All I know. connected. Yeah. And yeah. and aside from your love of film and cinema, let's narrow it down a little bit to what we talk about, which is spy cinema. Now. I'm I'm pretty sure you like a bit of spy cinema. You've spoken to me about it quite a few times. But I certainly do. Yeah. Where does that love come from, and where did it start for you? Oh, so it's it's interesting. So I think um, I mean Bond. Of obviously, I think I've been um, fortunate fortunate enough to see every Bond film um, at the cinema, starting from uh, the the Moonraker. So that was my first one. Um, and obviously on from that and then, you know, going back and watching, um, you know, previous ones to that as well. But um, things like, again, sort of going back and um, their TV, like I remember watching um, the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Mm-hmm. Um, not on the original broadcast, I think a, a repeat, but getting hooked on that and that world and then that opened up to um uh, sort of books and things like that but mm-hmm. also i'm of an age where where sort of film was you know when you only had so many like their sort of channels and uh, there would be big films on a on a sunday uh, this sort of afternoon or or a saturday night and you'd have um you know, Three Days of the Condor or um, they're the Harry Palmer films, obviously, they're the Bonds, um, just all that stuff. And they they are, they're exciting films. And But also as well, I think, you know, living through the, the, um, like the sort of Cold War and having the last sort of remnants of that, you know, going on in, in, in the, the real world as well and, um, it all it all sort of ties in. It all it all feeds in, and uh, yeah. And who doesn't love it? I mean, if you don't, you know, if you don't like a spy film, then there's there's something wrong with you. Sorry. I mean, you're listening to the wrong <laughs> show if you don't. Yeah, <laughs> you'd be very frustrated with this show by this point. <laughs> Why won't they talk about the Flash? When are they going <laughs> to talk about Fantasia? <laughs> well, okay. So I think your spy credentials check out. You've got a little lot of love for this genre. And the film we're talking about this week is something you've been championing online for quite some time. <laughs> which is why just I thought it would best to... Yeah. Just a little, a wee bit. It's why I thought it best to have you on to help us sort of bring it in. But the question I'm going to throw to you, Cam, is, you know, you've got two British guys and a Canadian. Mm. And we're here to talk about a very American TV movie. What What is that film? We are going to talk about 1988's The Bourne Identity, which was, of course, a television miniseries back in the day. 
Yes, we are. We're not exactly breaking new ground. We kind of already started this down this path with the Harry Palmer TV movies. But we think there's some exceptions to our rule of them being cinematic releases only. Some very big names. I think one was mentioned early and was saying about Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And there's like the Smiley's people, that sort of stuff. There are a few TV movies that really do get thrown around in spy movie circles to some of the best. So I think we will be looking to include them in the future. And I'm glad we're sort of starting that run with uh, Ian's favourite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think if if you're not familiar with The Bourne Identity by now, and I'm sure you've probably all seen the Matt Damon version of this film from 2002, but yes, there was a TV movie. And you'd be surprised, it's kind of a different story in many ways. So here is your letterbox.com synopsis to really cue it up. And I do apologize because there's a dot, dot, dot more. <laughs> An unconscious man is washed ashore on the beach of a small French village during a heavy storm. A retired doctor takes care of the unconscious stranger. So far, this is reading like chapter by chapter, I will just say. So far. So maybe this dot, dot, dot more is just going to be like every chapter in a row. I interrupted. Mm. I'm sorry. When the mysterious man recovers, he can't remember a thing. He does not know his name. He does not know where his flashback memories come from. And he does not know why an access code for an anonymous Swiss bank account is implanted in his thigh. As he seeks his own identity, wink, wink, things become quickly, dot, 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 more, dangerous. <laughs> that, no, that's a gr great dramatic pause there, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Dangerous. Was it all in caps? It, it should be. It should be. Okay. There are attempts to kill him. He is well known in first class hotels across Europe. And worst of all, there are strange similarities between his memories and reported actions of the notorious terrorist, Carlos the Jackal. Mm, I yes. mean, it's long, but that's pretty good. I mean, there's so much more in this miniseries. <laughs> there's so much more to describe. So, yeah. Yeah, certainly so. And, I mean, the, the usual question we ask at this point is previous connections to the story. Now, I'd never seen this TV film. I'd only seen the Matt Damon version. I'd never read the Robert Ludlum novel. Uh, Cam, I think you're in the same camp? Yeah, although I was aware of this. Okay. I remember back when I was younger, I was very familiar with the action section of my local video store. Mm. My friends and I would go down there pretty much every weekend and rent something and we would go through you know we started obviously with your schwarzeneggers your van dams your Segals, and then at a certain point we'd seen all those so it was just like mining the shelves for anything else that looked interesting and i remember constantly passing the born identity on the shelf and again i was a teenager so i'm looking at richard chamberlain circa 1988 and jacqueline smith on the cover of this uh you know I'm sure it was probably a VHS box and then later a DVD box. Mm. And I was just like, this does not look appealing to me. And I now have to question why they were putting it in the action section. I think that might have been a little bit of a stretch. But nonetheless, I it really lodged its way into my brain. So I remember seeing the trailer for the Matt Damon film. And when it said, the born identity, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> it's all connecting. It's all connecting. I, I was really hoping you'd say something like, I went through all the classic heroes, Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Chamberlain, and then you uh, grabbed a copy, but alas, that wasn't to be. Wouldn't it have been amazing, though, if my friends and I had rented it? Yeah. Like, can you imagine the experience <laughs> we would have had? Well, I, I can't imagine that sleepover being particularly fun. 
It's like we got species or we've got, um, yeah, we've got the Born Identity 1988. <laughs> Day of the Jackal or this? Predator or mm. this? Mm, interesting, interesting choices. But the man who knows all about this, Ian. Now, you've clearly seen this before, yes. right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And And you've read the book too. I have, I have. I have done both, and I do remember. I remember seeing this version on some um, their satellite movie, uh, their channel. Not one that you would have heard of, and not one that actually comes there to mind. But I remember seeing it on the. I think I stumbled across it by by sort of accident and uh, and watched it. Now this would have been pre. The 2004 for for the Matt Damon, yeah. It was 2002 was when the Matt Damon 2002, one came out. Two, yeah. So yeah. so prior to that, and I had v- vague sort of memories of it, and then obviously, you know, the film, uh, the trilogy, you know, came out well, or the the trilogy as it was, it came out, um, and then picking up the DVD to watch it again, and then. And then about five or six years ago, actually thinking, right, I'm going to read the, the book. So uh, that was a, a nice um, holiday read, actually. I read that when I was on holiday and uh, got through it pretty quickly because it's, it's quite a lengthy book. It's quite, it's, mm. you, know, it's a, you know, it's a decent size to read, but um, I, bashed, I bashed through it. So it certainly caught me. So, um, I've been told it's quite the tome. It's... It's 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 interesting because the 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 the, the TV miniseries is pretty it's pretty faithful. It, it does a good job in actually adapting the the book. So um, mm-hmm. whereas obviously the the two thousand and two basically just takes a a sort of kernel from it as a as it were, and then and then yeah. kind of runs with it. So a few names, a few places, a few story ideas, and that's that's basically yeah, the fairly take. much. So but, yeah. I mean, yeah. Going back to your sort of watching it on satellite or cable when you saw it on the whatever movie channel, do you remember being mm-hmm. particularly impressed with what you saw? Did you was it like both parts back to back or over two nights? Or how did you sort of first take it in? Was no, I think it was actually both parts back to back, and uh, I I can't really say that I I sort of studied it too much. It maybe it was just a it was it was on and and I watched it and. Probably back then as well. I was I uh, was a bit younger and not as uh, not as focused on what I was watching, perhaps. So, um, what you're saying is you're about three lagers down, and uh, I, prob- yeah. I probably was to be fair. Yeah, probably. Was. You're just yeah, just chanting Jacqueline Smith's name and just doing like a, a wave in the background. Here. Really, get, really getting into the show. I, I like that. I like that. Like someone has to cheer this film on. So, and, and that's what we're doing now. We're sort of bringing it back into the spotlight, I'd like to think. But the next task falls to us of sort of telling the story of the Bourne identity. So back to you, Cam. So this is difficult because if you Google the Bourne identity 1988 and look for making of details, they're very, very sparse online. And so we didn't really want to do a disservice to you listeners regarding the history of this film. So, Scott, I think we have a surprise also landing this week. Yes, later this week on the Friday that this episode drops, we're actually speaking to the director of both episodes, Mr. Roger Young, 
And he really has all of the intel about how this TV movie was made from pre-production right through to release. And, and you know, there's a couple of stories about even talking to the author of the book that I'll leave you to find out on Friday. But yeah, a lot of info there. So that I imagine a lot of what Cam might have been saying in this section is basically on Friday. That's right. We don't want to hijack his stories, so we'll leave those to him to tell. But I can give you some intel on some of the people involved. Mm -hmm. uh, so it sort of started as a Warner Brothers project. They had the rights to it. And they hired writer Carol Sobieski to adapt this for a two-part uh, TV miniseries. And she was an Illinois-born writer, started off in the mid-60s on the TV show Mr. Novak, and then moved into the television show, which I think some people will really remember, Peyton Place. And she wrote 88 episodes of that show. Does anyone remember Peyton Place or have any familiarity with Peyton Place? You're looking at the wrong guy, Cameron. Yeah. yeah. No? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, is it like a, maybe it's a North American thing because there's two Brits here, maybe not helping you out too much. Possibly, yeah. Like it was a very, very celebrated book okay. that was published, I think, in the 1950s, and it's sort of about the kind of the inner dramas of a small town, and it was adapted into a film that was a massive, massive hit. I think it was a Best Picture nominee, right. and then they turned it into a very long-running television show. So, like Peyton Place has at least a certain amount of pedigree in sort of television's past. Well, I mean, just looking at its details now, it's a it's a US made production through RKO Studios and made by 20th Century Fox and, and ABC. So yeah. I, I, yeah, I imagine most American sitcoms find their way over here at some point, but not all of them crack through where we we have all watched it. So I think that one just sort of skated past uh, Ian and I. Yeah, for sure. Although not a sitcom, more of a hour long drama. Well, I've never seen it, so I'm going to pretend it was a sitcom. <laughs> Well, I expect you to catch up on the entire works of Peyton Place for the next episode we record. Peyton Hodge it is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Sobieski also worked ongoing in lots of TV movies. Like, if you go through her filmography, just tons of TV work. She also wrote the 1980 Willie Nelson film, Honeysuckle Rose. And that was the first motion picture she wrote. And then she did a couple really notable ones. She wrote... Annie, ah. the adaptation of the musical, and then also the Richard Pryor film, The Toy, which has a certain amount of cult fandom built around it. And then, you know, bounced back into TV, did a bunch of that, and uh, she wrote the TV movie A Place to Call Home, which she actually co-wrote with Jerry Taylor, who would go on to be a major Star Trek writer, Red Alert Scott. Well, starting early. And that led right into The Born Identity. That was the, the previous job to this. And she actually died quite young, at the age of 51, two years after this aired, uh, of liver disease. But her posthumous career continued. In 1991, she got an Oscar nomination for Fried Green Tomatoes, a movie she'd written, obviously, you know, a few years earlier. Okay. And her final credit was 1993's John Cusack film, Money for Nothing. So that one, I think, had like two or three other writers attached to it. It was probably a long gestating project. But yeah, like it's not super typical to have a writer pass away and have like a number of projects coming out over a few years. I think it's nice that they kept her name on it, really, because you could see other productions where it's like, oh, yeah, she kind of came up with the idea and then you just sort of bat it off to one side because they're not around to sort of argue the point anymore so no that's that's nice and they kept her sort of name on everything and uh, i'm glad she got some acclaim just a shame it was 
after her death. Yeah, but very prolific mm. over the course of her life. For sure. And the director you referenced him, Roger Young, also Illinois born, bit of a connection there, uh, and started as an associate producer in the late 70s. Started in the TV movie Something for Joey, which was about the Penn State football player Joe Capaletti. And that was like a biopic story about his relationship with his brother. And then rolled into the TV journalism drama Lou Grant and began directing episodes of that. Was an associate producer on, I think, something like 50 episodes or something like that. It was it was a significant number of episodes of Lou Grant. Is, is Lou Grant also a sitcom? Drama, I think. I can't win with these American shows. I have no idea. Yeah. 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 Notably, he also directed the pilot episode of Magnum P.I. And that was obviously a huge smash hit with Tom Selleck, as well as several other TV movies. He also directed the 1984 Tom Selleck Jane Seymour film, Lassiter, which was theatrical as well as the 1987 Michael Keaton film, The Squeeze, and that rolled into The Born Identity. I've heard of Lassiter before. I haven't. I don't know why. Hmm. Uh, it was... Uh, so, so, Selleck had this... Um, obviously, famously, he missed out on um, the Raiders. Yeah, yeah. So, so he was unable to play um, the Dr. Jones... Um, but he he had a few like this sort of attempts afterwards to have a you know launches his um, like this sort of movie um, uh, uh, their career as it were none of which ever really went anywhere so I mean he didn't he 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 really didn't sort of crack that you know a huge this star obviously but you know really for uh, like this sort of TV but yeah I do think. Um, like this Lassiter was one of those ones where it was like, you know, this will be his, you know, breakthrough sort of film, uh, their role, and 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 it wasn't. <laughs> I'm I'm just reading the IMDb synopsis for Lassiter, and it, it does read like the story of my life. Okay. A handsome jewel thief is arrested in order to avoid prison, <laughs> and he must break into a heavily guarded German embassy to steal millions of gems. Not a very well worded. Uh synopsis there but basically about a handsome guy so uh yeah i i, I just okay. wish i had his level of mustache but uh, the poster is tremendous i might add that's some wonderful that looks like it's bob peak almost it's great stuff uh you but it does also looking at the trailer in the background here with no sound it does look like it's sort of an indie riff yeah um tom Selleck did a few star vehicles because as ian was saying i remember runaway was one i used to see <laughs> in the video store and then there was quickly down under which was a western that I think was a bit of a box office bomb, but became a constant play on television and has a whole fandom built around it now. Another one of those that goes over my head. Ian, got any, got any quickly facts for us? Um, I well, well, you know, uh, there comes absolutely right. Yeah, uh, also over here endlessly on uh, uh, their TV, but um, not one of. Uh, I have seen it, but not one that really stands out. Is, is um, there Sharon Stone in that? No. That oh, one? it might have Did been. Did he do one with Sharon Stone that does? Yeah. But, mm, yeah, not not memorable at all. The Down Under version stars Alan Rickman, and uh, the female lead is Laura San Giacomo. I don't recognize the name. Oh, but, okay. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, Alan Rickman's the villain. Right. So uh, you kind of win with that, right? Oh, you always win with Alan Rickman, so I'll take that. Yeah. And Roger Young also went on to do like a lot of other event miniseries in the wake of the Born Identity. Uh, movies like Geronimo, Moses, Jesus, uh, Solomon, as well as episodes of Law and Order, The Closer, and Rome. Very biblical in his later career. That's odd. Where, where was like the, the, the Cain and the Judas and like he's really flushing out those biblical characters? There were others. I think there was a Joseph one. Um, yeah. Oh, there's a real like BCU, is there? They're, they're kind of, well, you know, you think about it. There was such a huge uh, proliferation of biblical epics in the 1950s in theaters, you know, Ten Commandments, Ben-Hur, all these sorts of movies, it kind of makes sense to me that they came back as event miniseries like 30 years later. Joe, I, I, I had a good line there about BCU. Ian's giggling. You give me nothing but a straight answer to my question. <laughs> <laughs> Just move on. It wasn't worth it. Oh, whatever. <laughs> to, to be fair, though, Cam's got a good uh, um, angle on on the on that because it does it does just come round and round that's the thing you know it comes in their cycles and yeah you know we are probably due another one actually yeah yeah we we kind of got a little bit of one where we had exodus gods and kings and noah came out a few years ago neither one did particularly well probably cutting short that trend starting again but wait another 20 years or something well, maybe we're going Egyptian now because we just recently had that uh, failed Cleopatra show on Netflix that got everyone up in arms for five minutes. So maybe, yeah, maybe it's Egypt is the next one. Where's uh, where's the where's the Tutankhamun film? Where's that coming along? <laughs> there has been a long gestating Cleopatra film with Gal Gadot attached for quite a long time. Oh wait, um, wait, I, Patty Jenkins, I think, was going to direct it. I just realized we did have the Mummy a couple of years ago, and look where that went. So mm. yeah, you never mm. know, right? Um, and also Richard Chamberlain, you know, obviously a big star, um, both in film and at a certain point TV, the Thornbirds was a miniseries that took the world by storm. And so he was in a lot of these event miniseries following that. And this was his actually follow up to Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold, uh. which was sort of an Indiana Jones knockoff film. It was the second in the series. The first was King Solomon's Mines. Quartermain is a name I recognize. Isn't that like a character that was in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen like in, the, in the noughties? Yeah. LXG, sorry. LXG. Who played him? Sean Connery? You're right. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Cult connection right there. <laughs> I should have left that for Ian, actually. Sorry. I <laughs> stamped on his work. Well, well you know what? It's, it's, it's funny here. So we're talking um, the Chamberlain now. Uh, I... I was fortunate, or maybe not so fortunate, but uh, I grew up through their Chamberlain's, uh, their stardom, really. I mean, mm. I, I think what we need to, to think about, and for this this role as well, is obviously, well, why choose, you know, Chamberlain? He was, he was a huge, you know, star. Big, big TV star. Um, like I can remember afternoon... Uh, viewings now he was in um he he was in the long run in sixties the medical drama um the doctor killed dare and that was yeah and that was still being shown throughout the like their seventies early uh, their sort of eighties but um like you said the 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 thorn birds that was that was huge that was a huge hit 
Um, the Shogun, I think, came afterwards, uh, or similar time. Again, a massive TV, um, the mini uh, uh, the series. I mean, you know, Richard, the Chamberlain, really, he was he was huge. He was a big a big star. Mm-hmm. He did 191 episodes of Doctor Kildare. Whoa, that's uh, that's nothing to moan about. That's a uh, pretty good innings. And yeah, he's in stuff like Towering Inferno, and the yeah, guy gets around. Yeah. So this miniseries aired on ABC Television. Now the dates are a little muddy because it's like you read a lot of places May 8th and May 9th, and then other places say May 9th and May 10th. That's irrelevant because I have the Nielsen ratings for the week, so I can just talk about how it actually performed. Look at you making <laughs> l- lemonade out of lemons right here. I'm loving it, Cam. Keep going. That's right. So part one fell just outside of the top 10, but part two landed at number nine. So people must have had a little bit of buzz because they were tuning in for part two after they missed part one. And were they one day after the other, or was there a couple of days in between? One day after another. I, I would assume it was maybe water cooler stuff then. You look at what happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was the, the the two-part episode thing in TV series. is You know, especially cliffhangers between seasons was somewhat of a new thing in some in the 80s and 90s. And the, most famously, the one I know of, of course, Red Alert, is The Best of Both Worlds Part 1 and Part 2. And I know The Best of Both Worlds Part 2, like, I think tripled the ratings of the best of both worlds part one because they had a whole summer to talk about oh what's happening to Jean-Luc Picard now we've only got one day here but I have to imagine people went into the office the next day and were like hey that that boy identity was pretty good you should check it out tonight and then that's how you get more people yeah exactly and it landed right between something is out there which was a miniseries event another miniseries event happening there was a lot of these around this time uh, co-starring Miriam Dabo, mm. and it was a sci-fi launch. It was like a mini-series event followed by an ongoing series that only lasted like nine episodes or something like that. So it didn't really work out too well in the long term, but the mini-series event was actually very popular. That, that happened quite a lot, actually, sort of launching a show with a mini-series. I think about the original Battlestar Galactica, and then the remake of Battlestar Galactica did the exact same thing, where they had like a mini-series movie that was put out in theaters, and then they had the TV show follow-on from it. Mm-hmm. And it just beat out Who's the Boss, the Tony Danza sitcom that week. And the top three, number one was Perry Mason, The Case of the Lady in the Lake. Number two, The Cosby Show. And number three was a tie between Cheers and a airing of Beverly Hills Cop. When you say an airing, like a repeat. Well, they just were showing Beverly Hills Cop on TV. Oh, the film. Sorry. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 You just think like contextualizing this. Cheers was on the air at the same time as this. This is crazy. Yeah. That's that. Yeah, of course it yeah. was. And not even early, like it was a few seasons in. Wow, okay. And this miniseries did get some um, recognition at the Emmys. Uh, Lawrence Rosenthal's work on the score for part one won the Outstanding Music Composition for a miniseries or special. Part two. Eh. Yeah, they they submitted part one, obviously, for the award. Um, And previously, he was the conductor on a little film called Meteor that we covered on the Patreon. (laughs) Oh, yes, the Sean Connery not snooze opposite fest. of classic. Yeah, snooze fest, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Ch- challenging watch. The, the Sean Connery challenging watch as they all challengingly watch screens for the whole film. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so Rosenthal won that award. Wow. But um, Born Identity lost the editing in a miniseries or special 
Award, mm-hmm. but they yeah were nominated for that. And the Golden Globes nominated Richard Chamberlain for Best Actor in a Miniseries or Motion Picture Made for TV, but he lost to Michael Caine in Jack the Ripper and another tie. It was Stacy Keach in Hemingway. Uh-huh. I remember Jack the Ripper. The way you position those, like the way you position those, was weird. Like that, the Stacy Keach one felt like the big reveal, and I'm like, that that wasn't the big one. The the Michael Caine one should have come last of that list <laughs> that you wrote out there. I don't know how you built that. I don't know either. It was as I was saying it, I was like, this was a mistake. <laughs> but you know what? Props to you, Stacy Keach. We love you. <laughs> But but that's interesting. I mean, you know, Stacey Keach had 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 star power back then. That was uh, yeah, uh-huh. mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. And and Michael Caine, well, you know, he is Michael Caine. But I mean, you know, a film a film there star. So to have him in a, a their TV series would you know would would be rare. It would be um, like their sort of event. Uh, you know, television, and I and I remember watching that at at the time. Yeah, it was, that was a good one. Oh, you watched Jack the Ripper? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. I will also point out, in terms of you know cult connections, because Ian's here, uh, <laughs> Stacy Keach was in the Parallax View. That's right. Yeah. There you go. Huh. It all it all ties in. It all ties in. <laughs> Check out Cult Connections podcast. Just turn this one off and go over there. It's probably better anyway. <laughs> I hope um, Michael Caine appreciated the recognition he got for that TV experience because I don't think he had any Golden Globe nominations for those Harry Palmer TV movies. No, no. <laughs> it's it, I mean the eighties were a rough time for for Michael Caine. He really didn't really sort of find his feet until like mid nineties again. I think Muppet Christmas Carol and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, yeah, uh, that that's interesting. I covered. Um... They're a film called um, Their Bullseye, which he's in him, and yep. um, they're Roger Moore, of course. So, mm-hmm. and uh, that's dire. So, it's one of it's one, <laughs> it's one of those films, <laughs> but it's one of those films where uh, you know that that the cast and 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 the, the crew had a great time making it, and but what they actually turned out wasn't was not good. Um, and actually, that you could you could you could quantify that as a as a spy film in the way there's lots of undercover stuff going on and uh, you, 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 they're the CIA, yeah. So, oh, yeah, get bullseye <laughs> right. there on, on the yeah. I've said it now. Yeah, you need, Ian's just booked yeah. his second visit. Uh, <laughs> you, get, you made us watch that film that we won't mention twice. So we we're going to make you watch bullseye twice. <laughs> it all comes around. And my final note on this is that because of this miniseries, Warner Brothers controlled the rights. And when Doug Liman wanted to bring Bourne Identity to the big screen, he actually had to wait a while because he was trying to get Bourne right out of making his big debut, Swingers. And because the rights were held by Warner Brothers, he couldn't get anything moving. So he had to wait for a few years until the rights expired. And that's when the Bourne Identity happened. Oh, okay. I wonder if it would have looked any different if it came out a few years before and maybe not had Matt Damon in it. Who knows, right? Sliding doors. Mm. Well, we're talking about multiverses this week and all the alternate uh, Jason Bournes out there. So there's another multiverse where it came out in like 97, 98, I guess. And mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a different, that's a very different time. Like, I don't think you would have had quite the visual style that you got in 2002. 
I would guess, because I think he did the movie Go in, I think it was 99. That probably would have fallen in that slot. Okay. Is my guess. Maybe three years before. So maybe we would have had quite a similar film. But anyway, we're not here to talk about 2002. We're here to talk about 1988. Ian, you've been clamoring for this film <laughs> for God knows how many years now. You're here. Let's talk about it. You first, sir. What do you think overall thoughts on the TV mini movie of The Born Identity? It is um, a decent, proper, old fashioned um, spy thriller. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's it's um, it's you know it sort of hops around the Europe. There's um, you know I say old fashioned as in it's. Um, it's perhaps more a more sort of realistic, you know, story than see any of like, the the Bond films or 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 things like that. It feels slightly more more sort of grounded. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. the, the brain the brain sort of washing part of it's very it's very sort of it's very late sort of seventies eighties that that was used a lot in 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 um you know tv and film and uh, 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 their sort of books but and and it's very faithful and and the the story itself is 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 they substantial it's um you know the book itself and I will you know because when I watched this again just the, the other week and I hadn't watched it since I read the, the book and uh, mm-hmm. and and what I was really struck by was how how sort of faithful it actually is to the um, uh, their story and it's a it's a good it's a good old fashioned you know spy spy story and I mean would you say that because I know I can hear that you appreciate that they're sticking to the story but do you do you enjoy watching it could you watch this again. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, because yeah. it's 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 got all those elements that we that we like. That, that I think I I suppose it's in in a way it's about watching it, and you have to view it of of the time when it was when sure. it was made, or the or the or the or the, or the time that it's uh, they set as well. So you know you have to watch it through those eyes. Um, the the main villain is actually based on a real. Uh, their person so um and again so uh things like um uh, uh, this sort of bombings you know terrorism i mean that was um there was a lot of that going on unfortunately 70s and 80s uh, you know is israel and all kinds of things going on and um uh, uh, there uh, you know i island where we you know we are you know what what we're part of and it was all it was all headline, uh, this sort of news. So, um, so for me, it has that it has that um, like this sort of appeal. But also, I can watch it in a in a in a way of saying, right, right, this is this is a TV movie, so I kind of know what I'm going to get, and and my mm-hmm. expectations are are sort of tailored there to that. So. Um, and I'll watch any old stuff. You can say low; it's that, fine. Not low, just just a different. I think. I sure. Think that's the thing. It's it's like um, you know the story's good. The, the cast is there great. You know, there's 
you know, you know, lots of you know, lots of great actors here. You know, it's it's uh, it's fairly sort of gripping. Um, mm. And if you and if you haven't seen it, this does tell a, a slightly different Bourne, you know, story. So this is this is the the Jason Bourne that you know, but there is a bit more to it as well. So yeah, well, it sounds like you're on board. I'm curious to hear. Cam's opinion on this because of course you saw this in your video store you're dreaming about Chamberlain since you were in your teens you finally got to come face to face to his hairy chest what did you think of the born identity <laughs> it was a magical experience you got lost in the hairs I know I know yeah I did I did um so I went into this I think you know we we're you know Ian was saying about expectations I went into this really expecting something that was like an antique of the 80s. Because when I think of TV miniseries from the 1980s, I'm going, okay, like, how is this going to hold up? Because when I looked at those Harry Palmer TV movies, Scott... <laughs> squeak, 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 yeah. Yeah, like, just... You couldn't even watch them nowadays. They're just so disposable and just seem so... Like, they seem like antiques. Yeah. And to me, this was actually really surprising in that I thought it often looked beautiful. Mm-hmm very capably directed you had solid like actors throughout and it actually held up as a story that carried my attention pretty much from beginning to end i think there's some issues with the way i watched it which is this was intended as a two-night event mm -hmm. so you would watch that two hours you know that two-hour block and then you'd digest it and you'd go and you'd talk to people around, as you said, Scott, the water cooler. And then you'd come back with like the anticipation of like, what's going to happen next? How is this going to pay off? Well, I say the water cooler. It's the 80s. I mean, we probably didn't have that at that point. I mean, it was like a water mill you were at or like a, a hose, maybe. <laughs> you hadn't quite invented it in the 80s. So A trough? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a, it was a stream. Enough, you were by a stream. <laughs> You were by the local <laughs> river <laughs> with a bucket. Um, <laughs> but uh, watching it back to back as like a condensed three hour experience, I think it often gets a little overwhelming because it is the book from what I have read of, you know, Wikipedia and whatever. Like I haven't read the novel itself, but I'm aware of now of the story of it. And I mean... I did find it got a little overwhelming mm -hmm. just by the end of like the sheer amount of, you know, plot convolutions and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And Jacqueline Smith ping-ponging all over the place in terms of what she's doing. But I wouldn't have had that experience if I was watching it in the form it was intended. So I don't really hold that against the movie. I just have to say, like, I enjoyed it. And because it was so different than the 2002 film, it was just like a complete new experience. I never felt like I was treading the same ground only stretched out over three hours i i totally get that and i think i would echo a lot of what you just said from my perspective they can but i think i think that like the, the top line advice if you're listening to this and you haven't watched it yet and it's in my notes is to do it in two parts and do it over two days or maybe breakfast and dinner or something like that have time to digest because watching this is a three-hour film yeah I'm not sure it necessarily works that way, and nor was it designed to be consumed that way. Mm -hmm. it, and it's hard to really... And I did the same thing. I, I watched it pretty much back to back. I had maybe an hour in between to have some food. And I was sort of... I think I was tired a little bit, so I, I felt like a little bit of a drag at the end, but I, I, I think maybe a little bit is where I was coming from as well. 
But for me, I and we mentioned expect expectation. Baggage was the word I had written down. Baggage of of five born films, baggage of the book, baggage of it being a TV movie. There's all these sort of expectations you go into it thinking it's gonna be quite, you know, not low brow, but just not up to the standard of what we're used to on the show, even with things like Ishtar. But I was genuinely surprised. This film looked better than films that we've tackled on the show. This TV miniseries looked better than films we've tackled on the show by a country mile. Well, compare it to like a lot of the Netflix films, for example, yeah. that we see nowadays. You know, it's night and day. Well, you look at like um, something that came out around about the same time, uh, Trenchcoat, a few years early, the Disney spy film, where they're in Malta, and that's a gorgeous country. And it looks like absolute trash. <laughs> and I don't know who the cinematographer is in that film, but he shouldn't be working or she shouldn't be working anymore. The guy who ever did this, or the person who ever did this film, I hope won some awards or some accolades or got some gigs because of it. Because this film looks stunning. I think the direction is great. I think the performances are great. I was genuinely blown away by it. Yeah, this was a real surprise. Because I, re I really did think going in that we would be like, well, that was sort of the uh, footnote of the Bourne franchise. Had I kind of known what I was walking into, I think we probably would have scheduled this with the other Bourne films earlier in the show's run. Yeah, maybe like in the middle of it or something like that. Ian, I, go I kept seeing, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to yeah acknowledge what Ian is uh, implying there. This was actually, the reason we're covering this is because we had a lot of people over time messaging us saying like, why aren't you doing the Bourne 1988 miniseries? Yeah. So, yeah. Because we did the five film reviews and then we also did the jason bourne roundtable and we tend to only do those roundtable episodes when we're finished yeah for a character like that character's done or that actor playing that character is at least done we did a pierce brosnan one as well about his time as, as bond and yeah I, I think maybe we should have done this for that too because i think this adds a lot to what the character of jason bourne is and the story i think much as i love what the 2002 jason bourne the Bourne identity does i think there's some very different diversions in this film that are actually somewhat more interesting i had no idea that treadstone weren't like <laughs> this evil organization in the original story it's just a bunch of dudes sipping tea in a in a nice room somewhere yeah and like father figures and all this sort of stuff yeah and there's like a conklin and there's all the sort of classic born characters there yeah i i would say that um that the, the that the book makes their um their sort of motives more um shady as or or um they're conflicted when 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 it comes to uh, uh they're sort of born and yeah you maybe don't really get a sense of that with with this uh, their sort of version but I also think that there's there's obvious parts of 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 the the book that that work because it is it is a book and and you know you're always going to struggle a little bit to maybe put that up on on um uh, on like this sort of screen and to be fair to this version it follows the story fairly close pretty much beat for beat generally so to maybe not have quite that 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 sort of murkiness around um, the, the sort of treadstone 
maybe does make sense actually you know just you know if they were to maybe cut out one sort of thing then they thought that but well there's a there's a thing you you point out there that I'll probably save to my dislikes about sort of motivations and why people are doing what they do mm. so we'll get to that in a minute but I want to talk about the good stuff because it sounds like we have a lot of nice things to say about it let's go to likes ian you're up first something you really like about this version of the born identity uh, it 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 looks great it is it it does it's um short on uh, uh, the location so you've got you've you've got france you've got um uh, this sort of switzerland um you know it looks lovely there's no you know studio sets or or not many from what i can you know gather and uh, um yeah it's it's it is it's filmic it's not a, it's not sort of videotape either it's not a um so from that from that you know sort of perspective it's it's a it's a visual like this sort of treat and it feels very spy like you know like we're so used to you know bond going off to you know all around uh, this sort of europe and we get that same sense and uh, mm. i love i love that well, there's like there's interesting choices with the cinematography in this film. I noted down. There's like a shot really early on of someone going down the stairs, a very innocuous shot, and they've chosen to stage that shot as almost like on a crane above the stairs, a, a, a bird's eye view of him going down the stairs. There's no reason to go that far to do that shot, but they chose to make it look interesting. And I, I think we've had someone on the show before who, whose name has escaped me in terms of I think it was a cinematographer about talking about spy movies and the fact that it allows you to do different views that you may not usually get. I think it was the director, Mr. Fred Skepsi, who did The Russia House, who said that. Mm. Uh, you know, spy films allow you to see things from a different angle, a different perspective, because it is about people viewing and people watching and observing. And so it, this film had no... This miniseries, that we should probably pick our term for it, this miniseries had no right to be as good-looking as it did. Because I have to imagine, and I'm sure we'll get into it on Friday, shoestring budget, like they are running and gunning the whole way through this. So the fact that they took the, the care and attention to get some of these astounding shots, especially in Paris, there's some great establishing shots of just like Bourne running past and there's like the Eiffel Tower in the background. This all could have been done on the stage and it, it, it would have been a lot cheaper and it probably would have looked about the same quality level of other mini series around the time, mini movies, whatever it's called. But it really does go above and beyond in terms of its looks. The cinematographer was Tony Pierce Roberts, who had worked on Room with a View, and then basically did this movie and would go on and do things like Howard's End, Remains of the Day. This is a multi-Academy Award nominee. He also worked on Scott's favorite movie, Doom, oh. with Dwayne Johnson. So there's something amazing, <laughs> though, to me, thinking about the man who shoots something like this or Howard's End helping design that first-person perspective shot of doom where it's like the gun at the bottom of the screen moving around <laughs> i try not to think about that film <laughs> but yeah you had a very accomplished cinematographer on this movie and also did movies like disclosure uh the client so to me that makes all the difference because the 1980s isn't really known for having the best looking movies because they were using f uh, cheaper film stock mm -hmm. on a lot of the motion pictures so like i remember going to see for example as a comparison they did a um, double feature at one of my theaters of Alien and Aliens. And Alien looks much more pristine than Aliens does just because of the film stock they were using by the time Aliens rolled around. 
And it's not unusual, I think, to expect from a 1980s miniseries airing on television for it to look kind of shoddy nowadays just because of, they would have been using cheaper quality than even the film industry would be. And that was not the case. And I kept thinking of Russia House and how all the locations felt like real places. There's a scene where there's just a fight in a back alley where you get born kind of realizing he can fight for the first time. And it's just a basic back alley sequence, but like the alley had personality. It felt like a real location. And I watched, you know, some of the Marvel stuff. Scott, you and I talked about Secret Invasion fairly recently. There's so many scenes in hallways and offices, and it's all nondescript and doesn't stand out at all. And every location in here feels pretty alive. Which I think, just to bring it all back home, this is a TV movie. This is not a you know, $100 million budget film, and yet it looks about as good as some of them of its contemporaries that came out on the big screen. Uh, Cam, I want to throw it to you, uh, something you liked. I think when you're making a three-hour miniseries, you want to have a cast that pops because you've got all these little supporting roles. And I thought that this movie did some really clever casting. The one I really want to shine a light on, Denholm Elliott, who plays the doctor who finds Bourne and you know patches him up. I'm just going to jump in before people throw uh, rotten tomatoes at you. It's Denim. Denim? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, over here in North America, we've been pronouncing it wrong for a long time. If you listen to... Uh, North American podcasts, they'll often say oh, it, okay, I, the way I said it. I oh, I um, I crack up at, at some of them. Yeah, it, it, it's getting to say Worcester sauce or something like that. Worcester, Worcester sauce. Yeah. Sure. No, no. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I know I, it's all about love, Cam. I know you're trying to put praise on the guy, so please go ahead. Of course, <laughs> Denim Elliott is like the best example of the casting of this movie, where it's like a small part, just a doctor that stitches up born. And the world they create around this character, this man who was an alcoholic, who lost his license, he carries all of this backstory just through the performance. And I was like, this movie, I think that's where it won me over, was that going in, I'm like, okay, am I just going to see them kind of jumping through the hoops that I've seen done, you know, in the Doug Lyman film, which is very acclaimed and very, very good. And I was sucked in with that whole sequence. And I was like, I am on board. And then... As they slowly began introducing other characters, you know, like I thought Donald Moffat as Abbott. Mm -hmm. That is not the Brian Cox version of Abbott that I know, that's for sure. But by the end of it, I actually felt something when his character died. Yeah. And it's just consistently well cast. I mean, Wolf Collar, who plays like Gold Glasses, one of the guys who's hunting Bourne throughout. And Wolf Collar from Raiders of the Lost Ark, as well as Denim Elliott. Mm -hmm. Just these people pop on screen. And so it's like it flushes out this world so well. I have some, not issues with the casting in terms of the leads, but it's more in terms of the dynamic I'll get to and the things I don't like. But, you know, Jacqueline Smith and Richard Chamberlain have star power. Sure. And it is a little strange. I will say I definitely was bursting out laughing just because I have in my head the idea of Jason Bourne, mm -hmm. having watched those Matt Damon films, right? And when I'm watching 53-year-old Richard Chamberlain jog with children in what seems to be a nod to Rocky II, to, uh, and it is scored to jaunty music, I was like, what is this? <laughs> this is not the Bourne I know. And he was so chatty. But, I mean, even though it is a very chatty, <laughs> often cheery Jason Bourne, Richard Chamberlain, huge star power, like holds the screen consistently, so I can't criticize him at all in that regard. 
No, I mean it, that start where you see him running on the beach with the kids. It's like, uh, what, what? So, what are we doing here? What is this? Uh, this is a friendly neighborhood, Jason Bourne. Um, <laughs> he even has like the toques or beanie uh, that like Stallone is wearing yeah, yeah. in Rocky Two. I was literally writing like, is this a Rocky Two homage? Because you got the kids trailing behind. It felt very much like that movie. Could it could well have been a little bit of a nod there. But yeah, I I, I want to sort of echo your love of the cast. The man I actually singled out in my notes was Peter Vaughan, who pops up in lots of things, but he's terrific most recently in uh Game of Thrones a few years back. But yeah, he a storied career, tons of credits to his name, but he's fantastic in this too. I don't have any problem with the leads particularly. I think they both put in good performances. I have a problem maybe with the chemistry between the two, which I think we'll probably get back round to later on. Yeah. But yeah, top to bottom, they've they've done good casting. Like they've this is a different Jason Bourne. You have to drop all that baggage about Matt Damon and go into this fresh. This is a a grizzled vet. This isn't a new guy. This is a, you know, this is someone who's been working in it for a while and, you know, has then had his memory wiped and that sort of thing. So once you get rid of that, it's fine. And Jacqueline Smith plays the Marie character very differently to Franca Patente, but you know, just as well as, I would say. Well, it's so different a character mm. that that's where a lot of the enjoyment comes because I can sit there and say, like, you know, I maybe prefer the Franca Patente version, but at the same time, this is like a Canadian, you know, treasury board member like it's someone who's a doctor it's just an entirely different character so i'm instantly interested because it's not doing the same things and obviously this is the version close to the book so this is the originator and what they're doing in the limans is a diversion completely they're basically rewriting these characters yeah. but like i obviously have it so ingrained the uh the 2002 onwards version just to see this different take and yeah jacqueline smith obviously had a lot of star power coming off of Charlie's Angels, and she's very capable here as well. It's a shame the film didn't end with them retiring to, like, Mykonos or you know, Greece yeah. or whatever it was, to, to ride, like, jet skis or whatever the end of Bourne Identity was. But that's a, that's a minor nitpick. <laughs> and one thing, too, I thought that was interesting with Marie was, because of the fact she was, you know, a older character, someone who was very accomplished in her field, she could actually answer questions for Bourne, she was the one figuring out mm. a lot of the puzzle in this movie. Whereas when you have the Marie in the 2002 version, she's someone who's basically been, you know, taken in a hostage situation with Bourne and then is kind of in the same boat he is, kind of like trying to figure out this murky mystery. Whereas Jacqueline Smith is much more, has much more like agency in helping Bourne. I will say, like, the multiverse of Marie's all have very bad taste in men. <laughs> that they do. Yeah, they aren't good at that. They aren't good at that. But yeah, she has agency. Like all the stuff in the bank, she's helping him figure that out because she knows that world. She has agency. Whereas, yeah, Marie is basically being mm -hmm. pulled along and is trying to help him out of a, a, you know, Jason Bourne. Matt Damon's Jason Bourne is more of a love thing. Whereas Jacqueline Smith feels more like she's actually caught in the crosshair a little bit and is, is using her wits to help them get out of it too. Well, it's interesting that there was um, maybe one thing that, that the that that this version doesn't portray too well as compared to the um their book is that um events happen and Marie is is um they're traumatized by them. Um so so almost sort of born and her are are sort of bonded by by sort of trauma and and, and uh, the, the book makes a bit more of that. Um 
and also the 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 the, the, mo the motivations for her actually staying with him and what and what happens later on are also are also better um better um you know they're more fuller they're the more uh, uh they're sort of believable actually some of the some of the story uh, i guess or choices later on i'm watching i'm thinking well that doesn't that that doesn't really make sense or, or why does she not mm. actually just yeah. leave then you know why does she go back and it's not it's not spelled out as well but then they're still fairly minor sort of points well, I, I just want to chuck in a couple of little likes that I've got, because the two big ones, I think we've already mentioned the casting and the cinematography, my top two were the bullet. I like the score, and it's no wonder it was nominated for some awards. I think uh, I think both parts were just fine. Uh, I think they did very well together. I, I, don't, I don't hold one over two, unlike the Academy, yeah. so you know, I'll put my nose up to them. But uh, I also just had, it had a good use of a cliffhanger. I think the cliffhanger was, was well done. Uh, it didn't it was weird to come back in and it replayed the last five minutes of the movie, but I guess that's probably what they did at the time. That threw me so much, yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait, 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 didn't I watch this five minutes ago? What's going on? And I will say as well, probably should have led with this earlier. This is all now available on YouTube. I wouldn't, I don't know in terms of rights if it should be or not and how long it will be up there for, and we will have links in the show notes below to that so you can go and watch it, and I'll put it up on social media too. I think the rights for this have just sort of disappeared and then was really chasing it down. You can get a DVD copy, but that is quite hard to come by. Some have it, some don't. But yeah, it is actually all up on YouTube now. Yeah. And I want to just chime off of what you're saying about, you know, like the aesthetics, the the visuals, the music hold up. And part of it is like you have Roger Young directing it and it's someone who just knows how to make these. Yeah. And there would be other filmmakers at the time who would be cranking out, you know, miniseries and TV movies where they weren't particularly accomplished looking. And I think there is a big part of the credit for why this one holds up as it does is probably his work. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, the guy was clearly a pro at it. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Keeping the lights on at Spy Hards HQ ain't cheap. And frankly, nor is feeding the school of attack piranhas. So we need your help. Roger that, Scott. Only at the Spy Hards Patreon can you gain access to exclusive shows like Agents in the Field, which tackles non-spy films starring your favorite spy icons, and The Debrief, where we channel our inner solitaires and predict how the big spy movie news of today will impact tomorrow. So make like a Treadstone agent and activate your Patreon membership at patreon.com slash spyhards today. Cam... Tell the people what we have in our sights this week. Scott, summer may be over, but that doesn't mean it's too late to catch up with all the great Spy Hearts content from the month of August on Patreon. I'm talking about reviews of the original Ocean's Eleven and Mars Attacks, and the latest episode of The Debrief, where we broke down the new Gal Gadot thriller, Heart of Stone. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy chinks. But... Let's uh, let's get our critiquing hats on. Let's talk about a couple of dislikes. I, I've got a few. And I'm sure you guys might have a couple to point out as well. Ian, you're up first. Something you dislike about this? <laughs> um, Hold me back. <laughs> uh, some of the some of the accents. So so unfortunately, and I love I love a lot of of the cast. They are great, and and it's people who are loving lots of other things. 
dare I say it? So um, the Jacqueline Pierce plays the um, uh, the 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 owner of of the um, their fashion house. So um, if you've ever seen um, the BBC sci-fi series um, Blake's. Like they're seven. She's absolutely brilliant in that, and she's good in this. But her accent, oh, not so good. So some of the accents are a little bit there dodgy. Um, that's probably my main sort of gripe. That did kind of take me out of it a little bit. Um, you know, you know actually what the actor sounds like, and uh, to to when they put on a on a French accent, and it's like, <laughs> oh, not good, not good. Probably just a victim of you know TV budgets and and casting. There's only I imagine there's a maybe a bigger pool of people, but they st- they tend to say cream rises to the top. So I don't know whether everyone cast in this would necessarily be the top of most of the poppermost, as the Beatles used to say. But well, well, I mean, I mean that's the thing. I mean, obviously, Cam there mentioned it. I mean, you know the you know the cast in their general is 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 they're fantastic. Um, but. Yeah, maybe they just could have had a a little bit more on on um, on the vocal sort of coaching there, perhaps, and not and, and not your standard dodgy French accent. Thanks. <laughs> My suspicion is this is partly also the fact that, like, okay, if it's Meryl Streep working on a film, she's getting plenty of lead up time to perfect mm-hmm. that accent. I suspect a lot of these actors were tossed in this was a pretty fast production and there wasn't a lot of time to prepare those accents it's probably why you know you should probably just cast people who have sure. those accents anyway because <laughs> they can at least bring it back but uh wouldn't it be awful if it turned out she was french yeah then we'd feel terrible we'll, we'll issue an apology yeah. then well, we, we, we feel terrible all the time it's fine that's true uh and yeah you you're right though you look at a film we've sort of referenced already in this discussion the russia house michelle Pfeiffer had a, a coach mm-hmm. for her accent during filming the entire time and worked on it for months before so i doubt anyone working on this film had any of that no but then i guess conversely uh we talked on the patreon about keanu reeves in dracula (laughs) i'm sure he had some time (laughs) that didn't work out so well or kevin costner in robin hood (laughs) no all all very valid points and you're not the kind of guy to notice accents particularly either cam so well, historically, it's hard not to notice those ones. No, that, that uh, historically they're some of the worst. But uh, speaking of some of the worst, Cam, a dislike from you. Uh, I'm gonna maybe leave one for you that I think you're gonna bring up because I want to just talk about adaptation, and this is kind of a conflict I had with the miniseries, which is that this is a miniseries. They're supposed to be big. They're kind of gonna throw everything in. The kitchen sink is going into this miniseries, right? Because they want it to be a big two-night event but i did find like in terms of following the storytelling in one sitting it's rough and it's the sort of thing like you can see why they would be refining it if they're making it into a film when we got into like some of the material dealing with like the woman who was like the very wealthy society woman Mm. who was involved i was like what is going on at this point like there was points in the movie where it's just like you would have simplified and streamlined because a book and a movie are two very different things. And when you just shoot the book for a miniseries, again, I get it. There's a reason, for example, there's the three-hour Superman cut that they aired on two nights on TV or in one extended block. I can't remember which. But it's like they're just throwing everything in to make it an event, you know, maximum length. 
And so with this miniseries, it's fitting the form. It is exactly what mm -hmm. the form demands. But in terms of following kind of the plot details beginning to end, I found myself often quite confused and overwhelmed in a way that I don't think I would if I was reading the book. No, I I had that this noted down. Uh, it, it's there's there's just issues with it just being I, I don't want to say overlong. It was about as long as it needed to be, but it just felt like you know, say for instance, we know the ingredients that go into make a cake. Now you can make a very delicious cake or a very boring cake. We've had the very delicious version of this cake, 2002's The Identity. Now the same ingredients could make a vanilla sponge as opposed to a you know a chocolate cake, a triple chocolate or something like that. This is a different version of the same meal. I'm hungry. I got to go, Scott. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm hungry too, buddy. This, is, this has been all about cake analogies. But yeah, th this is a different way of serving it, of course. But we've seen the pro edition. Right. We've seen, we've seen it streamlined and stripped out of all the, you know, the, the, the funny sort of side characters and the, the weird little plot moments and like, fumbling around with you know rich chamberlain's hairy chest we've had all that taken away and we've seen what damon and Co Co can do with it which i think is baggage that it's hard to take away and i mentioned baggage off the top but this whole sequence is in this mini series that i was just sort of i i got confused as to why things were happening and who people were despite it being like an hour longer than the born identity 2002 well, like the emotional core of it is like born discovering who he is, right? And a lot of that feels mm. murky in terms of like a through line when you're stretching over, you know, two nights and this very dense mythology going on in this series. And that's something that clearly when it came to adapting it into a movie, they were like, that's the focal point. That's what's driving the entire experience. Whereas here, it sometimes gets lost. I'd say conversely, though, and I'm not. This is not necessarily in favor of the miniseries or in favor of anything else in particular. A lot of adaptations of novels I've seen, spy novels. I'm mm. um, taking Ian Fleming away from this discussion. Have actually worked better on television. Sure. Uh, famously, the one I really love is Little Drummer Girl. I hate that movie. It's it's a, a, I can't stand the Diane Keaton version of that story. But the Florence Pugh BBC miniseries is an absolute treasure. And it's actually like six hours longer when you top and tail it all. But by the end, you're like, this is a much better way of portraying the story. So maybe this was the right way to do the book adaptation, the fateful book adaptation. And I've seen it online, not just Ian. You've told me in the past in discussions and like DMs and stuff. But other people on different websites and on different social medias have said, this is a great adaptation of the book. And if that's what you're looking for, then I think this is probably the best way of watching The Born Identity. But when you're watching a major motion picture, you tend to have to finesse it and sort of streamline stuff. And, and we've seen the streamlined version. They very much did. I would, I would, I would maybe slightly, slightly counter that, or, 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 or just bring in. So we have this, this the mini series. We've had. Had had they the films, so the five their films, um, but the scope now actually you could take this first book and you could take some of the other books and you could have a a pretty decent long running their TV show. Yeah, you know, you know, actually expand mm -hmm. it out a bit more, um, and have you know, I mean, there's that many born born their novels you could. You know, you could have a this sort of Game of Thrones size sort of series, 
you know, and um, and I think as well for me, it's it's you know, and one of the one of the ways that my my sort of brain works, what I like is that I love the fact that there are versions of 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 sort of novels um, all throughout, you know, sort of cinematic or 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 sort of you know TV uh, the the uh, the history. Um, like there's so many different versions of so many great, you know, stories, and and actually there's always room for for more stuff. I mean, folk could maybe argue, mm-hmm. say, say if a say if a a born uh, this sort of TV series was made from from these these uh, books, I'm sure lots of people go, oh well, we don't need that, and I'd be like, well, actually we do need it because it's it's uh, someone else having. You know their their version of of a of a great you know story, and I'm actually you know more more the merrier, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean we've seen three adaptations of Ian Fleming's Casino Royale. Yeah, a TV episode and two movies, and your mileage will vary on all of them, and people will have their favourites of the three. I could probably guess about ninety eight percent of the population's favourite of the three. But or oh, sixty-seven for sure, yeah. Yeah, there, there are people who, yeah. Oh, well, Ian's a two percenter over here. He, he loves a bit of the sixty-seven, so that's that's fine. That's why you're here. You're because we love it too. He's been doing magic tricks the whole time, just silently. Yeah, it's just raising the table and lowering it again. Flags keep appearing from behind him for no reason whatsoever. But, but, but that that's that's the amazing thing, though, isn't it? There's three versions of that there, and. The world is a richer place for having them. I'm I'm not saying that mm-hmm. you know one is is they better than uh, the the other. One obviously is better than the other. We know that, and it's it's not the '67 mm. version. But you know, it's great having them out there. Though it's it's uh... yeah, it, it it's different interpretations of the same text, and it's fascinating how three different filmmakers can come up with different answers. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's what we're getting from this, yeah. And I would be totally on board, you know, decade or so down the road if we had a more faithful film adaptation of The Born Identity. Because I'd be very curious to see if they stuck to this story, how they would kind of finesse it into maybe a more propulsive two-hour you know, film. I, I would maybe say, like, contemporize it, if that's a word. Bring, you know, yeah. bring it up to now and have that sort of longer, more, you know grounded and gritty and realistic story but base it in now because this is a lot of it's tied into sort of well it's not it's, it's not really much in terms of the cold war in this but still there are elements of it and yeah so I, i'm interested to see what they would do there but I, I haven't spoken about my dislike cam kind of queued it up and i kind of cued myself up earlier and that is your two leads are absolutely wonderful and they have no chemistry <laughs> whatsoever and there's meant to be a love affair between them. There is even a love scene, if you'd like to see that. And to be fair, they're it's both something. Ridiculous. It's it really is something. <laughs> I mean, I've made two jokes about his chest so far this episode that really sort of lets you know what I think about it. But you know, at least they both get their kit off. So I, I appreciate that there's equal opportunities there. <laughs> but yeah, they're they're delivering their lines together as well as possible. But when you've got like Marie confessing her love for him. And she's so clearly above this guy. She doesn't need to be dealing with this, this like, <laughs> I don't know who I am guy. She doesn't need it in her life. And I don't really understand where that connection is coming from. Whereas I felt the heat between Matt Damon and Franca Potente. And I know, I know I shouldn't be comparing it to 2002's The Born Identity. But as we've just spoke about, different interpretations of the same text. 
I've seen this text interpreted in a different way and a more successful way. Yeah, this was a big issue for me was just the complete lack of romantic tension between the two of them. We have more chemistry now. <laughs> yeah, when I read that opening line about, you know, forgetting the violence, uh, there was more heat coming off that. Hey, I've got a hairy chest. Let's do it. Let's do it. This felt like, to me, it kind of tips into that kind of 80s writing female characters syndrome. Whereas, mm -hmm. like, on yeah. one hand, she is very proactive in the story. So, like, I give them points, and probably Robert Ludlum as well, for, like, having that character accomplish things through the movie. But, like... Mm -hmm the way she's set up, you know, kind of the uh, damsel thing where she's being sexually assaulted in the back of a car and Bourne has to save her. And she's kind of dragged along and they create this obligatory kind of love story out of that. It felt like it just, it was a little bit of an older era. And that comes somewhat with the territory, but at the same time, it's a little frustrating when there's no sparks whatsoever. It would make more sense if it was kind of like they forged this par partnership of two people who yeah. are going through a shared experience and maybe at the end they hint there's some like kind of lingering sense of intimacy between them or like that there could be something in the future. Kind of like uh, Michelle Yeoh and, and Pierce Brosnan in Tomorrow Never Dies is that they ruin it right at the end. Yeah, exactly. Like maybe a look between the two of them. Like you have the sense that these two have connected over the course of this story. But when you have her just like full on like, I love you. <laughs> and he's like, huh? You know, it's a Who little, are you? yeah, it's Where a little, um, it just doesn't work. And I found it kind of interesting how the second half kind of separates the two of them quite a lot. Mm. She's off doing her own things through a big chunk of the second half. But because of that, you, whatever, whatever spark you could like try to find in that first half is really evaporating because they're not together really that much in the second half. So... Uh, yeah, that was a big issue for me. I mean, it, like you say, I think it was a, a sort of product of its time. And I did, you mentioned that car scene. Uh, I did, in my notes, write it down as the uh, Biff and Lorraine scene from Back to the Future. Yeah. Yeah, big time. Yeah. Yeah, because you've got Richard Chamberlain being Marty McFly and watching them creepily uh, outside the car. That was, um, I think, it's, that that scene's actually been changed quite a bit from 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 the the book and i spoke about um their trauma uh early, early, earlier and i would imagine that was probably a um you know probably a wise uh, their sort of decision from um they're sort of portraying what happens on uh, their tv but it maybe does then you know, you know, um, sort of dilute some of the reasons why these two characters are are sort of, you know, fused uh, there together. And, and I'm not going to spoil it for mm. people either. But it's yeah, it was quite it was quite hard going. Yeah, certainly was. Well, I think it's just left to us now to tidy up any final notes that we have. Ian, is there anything else hanging around in your notes you want to mention? Um, not really. Just actually go out and and watch it because it exists, and uh, you know that's uh, that that's it for me. I think I just love the fact you know you know when we mentioned that you know Bond has it, and there's so many great other versions of of things that you love, and uh, you know like I know how you guys you know like I think I think have you covered all all three versions of the um the 39 best 
their steps now? Have you? No, we haven't covered the seventies version yet. Have you? Have you not done the seventies one? Well, I think you know what. I think it's absolutely brilliant that you know that the thirties version's obviously very well known. The the seventies version mm-hmm. for me were probably very well known as well, and actually that the fifties version's not so much. But you know, go out and watch them because you know they are there. So just you know. Uh, and their bones there, and and watch it, and just you know, think think what if. Compare and contrast. Take notes. Find out what you like and what you don't like, because you're sort of seeing the same story portrayed. Yeah, a of yeah, times, exactly. You can see yeah. which version you like, and you find out what you like from that. No, it's perfect advice. I would I would jump off of Ian's advice and say, yeah, but just take a break in between. <laughs> That's my recommendation as well. Uh, I had a few notes at the end here. Um, we haven't talked about it at all. The action in this is actually really well done. Mm. Uh, you know, you have that fight between him and the um, double amputee in the yeah. like, uh, you know, apartment. Really brutal headshot. Really, brutal. yeah, brutal. And I was surprised how bloody this was. There's some decent fights, um, and then like the face off with Carlos the Jackal at the end. It has a little over the top eightiesness to it, but I like over the top eightiesness. So that's what I was raised on. So when you have that whole face off and then born kind of like losing it at the end where he has like, you know, the, the flare red light around him and he's holding the Uzi and they have to kind of talk him down. I'm like, this is intense. Like this movie has, I think action that won't disappoint people because I think a lot of Mm. viewers are going to have seen the Matt Damon version, which is really noteworthy for its action sequences and are going to go like, okay, what am I going to get in this? And I actually think this delivers really solid '80s action. Yeah, this isn't this isn't pedestrian by any stretch of the imagination. It's, it's actually our fault for not bringing up the action. There are some really cool sequences, and I, in my sort of final notes, I was just going to point out some bits and bobs too, like that the action sequences. And you mentioned that red flare. I wrote down in my notes. It reminded me a lot of the scene in Firefox, where Clint Eastwood's in the shower room and he's like surrounded in red and he's having his PTSD setting in. It's like a panic situation both made around the same time and yeah maybe a callback between one of the two who knows but yeah the whole red meaning anger thing is probably all built into that too there's also a nod to a film we mentioned earlier day of the jackal where richard chamberlain is in a lift with the baddie and sort of watching it from behind it's very much uh, robert redford and max was out in the lift so yeah remind me that there's a lot of sort of callbacks in this film i just think it's very well made scott did you recognize the man in the elevator with Richard Chamberlain in that sequence. I did not. This is a big connection. A really big one. He is an actor named Wayne Michael. He is also Mm -hmm. a stuntman. He performed the bungee jump at the start of Goldeneye. Wow. (laughs) There you go, folks. (laughs) Look at that. You know, you didn't have all the research at the beginning, Cam, but you're coming in with knowledge now. Yeah, I recognized him when he walked on screen because he appears in Goldeneye as one of the helicopter pilots that Xenia yeah. murders. And mm-hmm. so when he walked on, I was like, wait a second, because this is a few years earlier. But uh, yeah, there you go. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, creating a social media post for me there, Cam. I appreciate it. <laughs> you're welcome. But I also didn't... Uh... You've saved me 10 minutes. <laughs> but I also didn't expect like the level of brutality this has. Because I thought it would be, again, sanitized for TV. I was going with all these preconceived notions as to what I would get out of a 80s TV miniseries. And, you know, you had, like, Bourne getting his fingers smashed in a car. You had the sequence at the start where he first, like, 
pulls Marie back by her hair. And it's like very intense. And there's a little ambiguity at that point as to who Bourne could be. Like, is he an enemy what agent? he's capable of. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I really would have anticipated in that era that it would have been more sanitized. Yeah, it would have played it safe because, it, you know, an 8 o'clock movie... Yeah, you know, we have watershed here at nine PM. You can start to show a lot more action and, and that sort of stuff at that point. But yeah, this is it's taking chances and I think that's why we're all sort of saying, you know, you may not have watched it, you might know the story, but you haven't seen this version of it. Exactly. And I think people would be angry at us also if we didn't mention the actor who plays Conklin. That is Shane Rimmer, who appears in <laughs> several Bond films in various roles. Yeah, Shane Rimmer. Uh he's been in yeah, he's popped up a few times, isn't he in the Spy Who Loved Me? He is. He's 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 the, the submarine, uh, uh, their commander. He's, yeah, uh, and apparently he's also in Batman Begins. So long and storied career, Mister Shane Rimmer. Yeah, just one of those, hmm. um, you know, legends of that time period who pops up in all these different movies. Well, folks, we've washed up on the shore. It's time to talk about the knock list. The boy identity gets a second shot. You know, it's one of those one of those films that people have said to us, hey, you didn't put the boy identity on. Why is that? Uh, well, we had our reasons for not putting it on when we covered it very early. I think it was like our fourth episode, third episode, something like that. So, will it make it this time? Let's find out. Three votes. Ian, you're up first. Do you think the Born Identity miniseries from 1988 should be on the list of the best spy movies of all time? Yes. You need to have the Born on... I know, I know some of the others, but... But for this version, yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a classic. You've been championing this this uh, miniseries <laughs> for three years, so I think if you said no, I would have been more surprised. It it gives you everything that you need. It's it's a proper spy spy film or or series. It's got it's got all of the elements. It's I watched they when I put it on there the other day, and I hadn't watched it for a while. But you know, my first first sort of thoughts were. Yeah, this is this is what spy film they're making should be about. That absolute, you know, it it's, it resonates to me and think, yeah, this is this is classic spy film film they're making. Yeah. Well, okay, that's one vote. It's all still to play for. Cam, you're up next. Where are you going to take us with this? I'm really torn because the thing is, like, yeah. I think. If I'm to gauge this against other movies on the knock list, my answer is no. Because I just think, like, if I'm to compare this against the 2002 film, which did not make the knock list, I think that is a superior experience. Yeah. The Bourne okay. Supremacy did make the knock list, and I do think that is the best of the Bourne. So if that's my high watermark, this one yeah. doesn't measure up to that. Um, but then I'm like, okay, at the same time we're now kind of wandering into previously untracked territory with like the TV miniseries. Sure. And I don't know how many of these we're even going to do on the show. <laughs> I don't even know if we have any other miniseries on our master list, even to cover other than, I guess, as you said, Tinker Taylor soldier spy. And then I start to go, well, wait a second. Uh, I haven't seen Tinker Taylor soldier spy, but it's been my experience that most uh, spy fans would probably hold that in higher regard than this. So, okay, now I'm really struggling because I think I have a hard time saying yes when I'm comparing it just within a franchise of the Bourne stories. And I think I would say that I still hold true that Supremacy is the best uh, installment of that yeah, whole series. I'm still with you there, yeah. 
but I would be, I think, more more willing to like nudge up the first one than put this one over the first one. So I think I'm going to say a no, and I'm going to basically just have to wait and see if I'm just dead wrong about the miniseries, you know, kind of selecting the ultimate miniseries to go on the knock list. Okay. So one yes, one no. It's the odd occurrence where a freeway vote and the third vote actually mean something. So it's all eyes on me. I'm less torn than you are, Cam. Okay. Uh, I'm not a full Natalie and Bruglier, but... <laughs> all the 90s kids salute that reference. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Ian's shaking his head, but he knows exactly what I'm talking about. I do. And you don't, sir. <laughs> yeah. I thought I saw a man brought to life. Anyway... <laughs> Actually, that kind of goes with this film, funnily enough. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a toughie. I, the thing that is in my head is what you said, Cam. It's uncharted territory for us. The Harry Palmer films were so, the TV films, were so terrible that I think they actually got disavowed in the end. They were that bad. Yeah. Like, they were never going to make the knock list. This is a successful TV movie. This does exactly what it says on the tin and delivers a very good adaptation of a book that's beloved by spy you know, novel fans and spy movie fans around the world. So on that level, you have to think, well, it's a yes, a duh. But I think the problems I have with this drag it slightly below what I would intrinsically say is something that goes on the knock list. And for me, yours, you know, for you, Cam, I've always seen it as more of an academic thing when you pick the knock list. For me, it's more of an intrinsic feeling. I know when I've watched something or not, if it's going on the list, in my opinion. And I left this saying no. And it's not, for a lack of it trying it's not for a lack of it doing very well and doing a lot of things very well i think we said more likes than dislikes which is actually quite rare that being said i think the chemistry between the two leads holds it back i think it's probably a bit too long if you watch it back to back which is maybe my fault and which is why we're advising you all to take a break or a day or a week in between your two viewings of the two episodes but is it the you know is it a need to see official classic we had this discussion famously with john cork on our wrecking crew episode that came out a couple of months ago at this point and you know he pointed out it's need to see official classics is this need to see do i need to watch this because i don't i don't think i need to recommend people to watch this that's the kind of the ground i fall into with this where it's like it's definitely something like if you are a born fan yes if you are someone discovering the spy genre i don't think so because this is meant to be given to new viewers of spy movies and like these are the things you need to see. I would much rather point them in the way of The Born Identity 2002 than this. And that's no indictment on this. That's just, I think it's a more concise way of telling the story. Or even just as I said earlier, like I haven't seen it. So who knows how I feel when we actually tackle it. But the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy mm -hmm. Smiley's People miniseries, I just think are held in a far more well they just have a lot more relevance i think that continues onwards whereas yeah i don't know that the born identity 88 has that relevance around it no i i think i'm gonna go with no and i i understand that this is our second foray into this world of miniseries and we may we might eat crow in a couple of years time we've done a few more of these and be like yeah actually we had a really good one with born identity and then that's that's on us famously we made a couple of bad calls with spy game and stuff that's on us we love spy game but i yeah we we have to go with our gut and this is where we are we're voting right now we're not voting in two years time 
But I also don't want people to ever take the knock list as a binary good or bad thing. <laughs> it's like mm. lots of good movies don't make the knock list. Yeah, there's there's like a category that we haven't really defined that are like these are really great, but they're just not quite good enough. And I think this would definitely fall into that category. Yeah, I recommend people watch this. Yeah, I think if you like, you know, spy stories and you like what Bourne did, here is a different version. Like people who say they don't want to watch Casino Royale '67 because it's not an official James Bond film. I mean, apart from them being absolute lunatics for saying so, yeah. you should watch it because it's it's Casino Royale 2006, but very different. But it is kind of the same story. So I'd say check it out. That too. I, I think I made the same vote when we covered that film a while back. But to The Boy Identity 1988, it's a no from me. It's a no from Camp. It's a yes from me. And as such, <laughs> two no's, one yes. It is not making the knock list. The dossier on the miniseries is complete and filed as classified. Ian. <laughs> You've been waiting. I'm sorry we didn't let it onto the knock list. We gave it a good shot, but I'm glad we've finally spoken about this miniseries. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, and don't worry, guys, I will sleep easy there tonight, even though it's not made the <laughs> list, okay? That's, that's all right. But I think actually highlighting it and maybe getting it out, out there and letting folk know, look, this does exist and it is worth watching uh, and see what you mm-hmm. think. And uh, and for me, that I think that's... That's the kind of thing that I like anyway. I mean, um, you know, you know, versions that you don't know about of 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 this stuff. I'm and I'm always finding new 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 things there for my for my show. Finding out new sort of versions of this stuff, and uh, I just I just love that. So yeah, that's always a that's always a win for me. No, and you know, I think this uh, sort of cues up beautifully just to sort of mentioned your show a little bit i said it off the top cult connections we've been on speaking about the film we won't talk about but we will link it in the show notes below if you want to go and find that episode but tell us a little bit about the show so um yeah so so films um their tv a little bit of uh, their sort of books and things like that uh, just uh, mm-hmm. uh just to flesh things out a bit but it is it's about looking at um, some quite obvious sort of links, so it might do three films of a certain um, their actor or 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 their director, or there's some there's some more ob- obscure links as well. Like recently, I covered the um, the Terminator by not actually covering the uh, um, the Terminator, but finding three earlier similar similar films that. Um, you know, you know, covered very similar um, uh, uh, their storyline. So, so things like that. Just lots of uh, lots of quirky, fun, fun sort of angles there to look at stuff. So, yeah, that's what my show's all about. And I imagine you can find cult connections wherever you get good podcasts, just like us. Yeah, well, you can find it where you find the good ones, and you can find it where you find you know ones like mine as well. So, yeah, it's out, it's out there everywhere. <laughs> And in terms of like online presence, where can people find you on social media? Uh, uh, Twitter. That's the main. That's the main bit. I can't. I can't really be bothered with anywhere else. But I'm. I'm. I'm there a lot, so you can find me there. Well, we'll have links to that in the show notes below. All I have left to say is, Ian, thank you for coming on and talking about a film I know you're very passionate <laughs> about. I'm, I'm glad we finally told the story of 1988's The Boy Identity. I wore you down eventually. That's the thing, isn't it? I won you. Yeah, that's it. It took you three years. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah exactly. <laughs> but yeah, but but uh, honestly, thank you for having this chat with us and thank you for giving us your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's it, It's been absolutely brilliant, guys. I've loved it. Thanks so much.
anytime. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat about 1988's miniseries, The Born Identity. Probably the last time we're ever speaking about Born, but you never know. I can't imagine Universal keeping that franchise on ice forever. No, no, not when there's money to be made. And speaking of sequels, Cam, what have we got coming up next week? Yeah, we are wrapping up the Arthur Bishop trilogy with the final Mechanic film, Mechanic Resurrection from 2011 with Jason Statham. Yep, we're back with Arthur Bishop for potentially the last time, but like I just said with Bourne, you never know. These characters tend to come back in this uh, this world of multiverses and all these sorts of madness. You never know what character is going to turn up in what film. But yeah, your mission, folks, should you choose to accept it, is to tune in next week as we take a look at 2011's The Mechanic Resurrection. If you like what you heard on this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you are listening to the show. And make sure you hit the subscribe button so you can stay up to date with the latest Spy Jinx. And uh, do not forget to follow us discreetly, of course, on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, Cam, I have a question for you. Mm, yes. Where am I going to send this outrageous bill to? 